All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, Dr. Rashad Ritchie is back with us. Uh, he is a former director of the Democratic Party of Georgia. Obviously, news coming out of Atlanta in relation to the protests there that we want to talk about. Uh, he's also a radio talk show host there. In fact, voted best talk radio personality in Atlanta. Uh, he's got the Rashad Ritchie Mori show. He's editor at large at Rolling Out Magazine. We did this last time. It'll take half the interview to go through all that. So, uh, Rashad, thanks for joining us again. Really Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, let, let's start with Atlanta. Um, I want to talk about two things there. I, I know this is a, now feels like a, a year ago, but it was actually less than a week ago when the big protest broke out in Atlanta and folks went down to the CNN building and there was unrest there. Um, uh, so that rattled a lot of people's uh, cages in the media and, and, they, and they got kind of freaked out by that. Um, let, let's start there. So why do you think they went to the CNN building in Atlanta? I think they went to buildings that represented power structure. Now, remember, there's a logistical reason why they went to the CNN building, because basically when you do a major protest in downtown Atlanta, the CNN building is one of the largest structures. It's very visible. And they also are being strategic. Many are looking at making sure media has an opportunity to highlight the protest, and this was also a strategy utilized by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others to get the attention of the media. And I know that a lot of attention has been placed on those who have committed um, acts of uh, rioting, which I don't condone rioting, nor do I advise it. Uh, but Dr. King said wise words about rioting. He said, a riot is the voice of the unheard. And the same vigor that we're using to come against those who riot we need to have that same vigor and energy as it relates to the things that led to the riot. And if we could match that energy, I think this problem would be solved tomorrow. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And that's that's what I suspected. I know location wise where the CNN building is. But the first thing you said uh, is also really important. I think the CNNs of the world are kind of shocked when it comes to their doorstep. But they are part of the power structure. Right. Uh, and and so and in fact, let me go broader, and then I'll come back to Atlanta. As as I saw local news uh, here in LA, but throughout the country as well, and as our audience chimed in on that and and what they were watching, it seemed to me that the news isn't getting it. They they think that they're part of the good guys that are reporting on this uh, these matters. That's their self perception. But when I watch it, I see burning buildings, looters on a on a loop, uh, almost like riot porn. Uh, and I don't see a lot of context as to why people are protesting in the first place. That's my impression. But I was curious what your impression is. Also, how's the local press in Atlanta? It might be better. Uh, so what's your takeaway on, on how the press has treated it so far? Man, I completely concur. I actually received a phone call today uh, on my show from a listener who said uh, that there was one news agency who got it right, who actually went deeper into the story. And by happenstance, I'm thankful I actually work for that news agency as the political analyst. Uh, but you're right, the context has been left out of a lot of the storytelling. I've challenged the media here locally to make sure they tell the full context, the full story, uh, because there's a cause and effect relationship to all of this. We cannot act as if this comes out of thin air. So while, yes, it's good to report on the news, regardless of what news it is, if it is newsworthy and it is um, consumed by the public, you report on it. 
But if you're reporting on the minority situation, because let's be honest, buildings being destroyed or um, somebody throwing a bottle of water, that's a minority report. That's not happening by the majority of the protesters. What is the majority conversation happening with those who are protesting on the ground? I would like to see more of that in mainstream media. And so, uh, Rashad, what, what do you think is happening with the, the small amount of violence that's happening? It makes it like, that's part of my beef with local news. It makes it look like the overwhelming majority of what's happening is violence because they sh they show the violence on a loop. And in, in violence, I mean the looting, the burning buildings, et cetera, right? And so it makes it seem like, wow, that's the only thing that's happening, when in reality, it's a small percentage. But when we're talking about having given that context in that small percentage, what do you think is happening there? Is that, so the, the Trump people say it's uh, all Antifa, whatever that means, but I don't discount that it could be left-wing groups, uh, radical left-wing groups. I don't discount that it could be the community. I could. I don't discount that it might not be the community at all, right? So, what's your take on on who's mainly instigating that stuff? Yeah. So we won't know for sure until you know everything. The smoke clears and people are arrested and have to plead guilty or go to trial, right? So that's how you really know what the data is. Right now, everybody's making their best guess. Uh, but here's what I think is really happening. Uh, you have a very small number of individuals who are hell bent on destroying something or they wanted to go a little further in their civil unrest uh, and throw something. Uh, but that is a small group. Now there's something in psychology called uh, group theory or group dynamics. And that group theory basically says, when you get a large group of frustrated people together and one or two people decide to do something that maybe the group, dis the group disagrees with, well, some of those other individuals in the group will start doing things that they would never do as individuals. So you have some of that happening as well. But I want to bring up something I think is really ironic. And I challenge everyone who is a student of history and a lover of freedom to think about this. The Boston Tea Party was not a party. We call it a party today, but it was actually a riot. The Boston Tea Party destroyed over $1 million worth of merchandise. And those individuals were white male Americans who disguised themselves and they decided to fight against what they considered to be government oppression. Now, today we praise them as patriots and heroes. And while, once again, I am not condoning the uh, rioting that's happening, I do find it interesting that in our retelling of the story, we have somehow figured out a way to praise these individuals who rioted back during the Boston Tea Party. And we're calling anyone who throws a bottle today a thug. Yeah, they rioted. They also looted. Uh, Correct. And uh, and by the way, it's not just the Boston Tea Party. Uh, history is replete with uh, with folks that that do looting, including Don Rumsfeld, incur almost encouraging the looting in Iraq, saying that that's a very normal event to happen, almost celebrating it. And I, I can go on and on when when you know when people that are perceived as on the side of the powerful oftentimes based on race, but not always based on race, uh, do it, then it's wonderful and it's an uprising against the oppressive government, et cetera. But when minorities do it, well, hey, wait a minute, now that's looting and rioting, uh, et cetera. And so look, th there are hard questions in here because I don't know that Martin Luther King would have gotten what he got done without Malcolm X. And now, but that brings you to an uncomfortable conclusion that that and, and I've seen some of the protesters in the very brief interviews with local news, because usually they don't give them a voice. But when they do say, hey, listen, man, when the building wasn't burning, you weren't paying attention. 
But that's that, a sad reality. Yeah, and, and so that's also true. That doesn't mean you should burn the building, but it is true. So how do we deal with that? What, what do we make of that? Man, you're making a statement of fact, brother. Let, let's go back to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was fighting for an enhanced civil rights bill. Uh, when he was assassinated, Lyndon B. Johnson, President Lyndon B. Johnson did not want to pass or sign a civil rights bill, even when Dr. King was assassinated. But seven days after the assassination of King, they signed that landmark civil rights bill that he had been fighting damn near his entire adult life to get passed. Why did they do that? It wasn't because they were remorseful over the death of Dr. King. It was because the seven days between his assassination to the signing of that bill, 110 cities in the United States of America rioted. That is a statement of fact. And in order to stop the riots, and in, in order to stop the protests, to make commerce a reality again in these cities, the President of the United States signed the 1968 Civil Rights Act. That seven days determined it. Not the death of Dr. King alone, but what happened after the death of Dr. King played a lot into it. You know, it's interesting because I already got something really productive out of this conversation. You made a great point there. So it was that it caused the economy to stop. And yeah. so when people stop making money, they start paying attention. It happened with coronavirus. It's now happening with these protests. And it also, that that's the same reason that the civil right movement uh, did the bus strikes uh, and, and did all the different strikes and labor movements that they did. Because once people stop making money, all of a sudden you have their attention. So my point there is, is that I don't think violence is necessarily the precipitating factor. It's the fact that people stop making money. That's the factor. So maybe there's another way to do that minus the violence. Yeah, I agree. And there are multiple ways to uh, protest the economics. We call it economic withdrawal or a boycott. That's another sim uh, familiar term. Uh, but the end result is to halt the enterprise of America in order for the powers that be to pay attention. It has worked that way for every protest, including the before mentioned uh, Boston Tea Party. They wanted to get the government's attention. And so they hit something that was highly taxed and highly profitable, and it did just that. Okay, uh, so now we're talking about Dr. Rashad Ritchie, and, and Rashad, you made a point right before we came on air that's really important I want to go back to. So uh, now the reaction of this government, federal government, has not been, oh my God, a, a yet another unarmed African-American man was killed. How, how do we fix it? In fact, I literally haven't heard one word about how they're going to fix it. Uh, or if they think that there's anything to fix. Uh, instead, their reaction was, we're going to use the military. So what do you make of that reaction, and what does that tell you about the government? That tells you, that tells me, that the president of the United States is not truly equipped to understand the complexities of race relations in this country to a degree where he can articulate an effective uh, message or solution. So the president's response literally to American citizens protesting about police brutality is to bring in a police force who has absolutely no training on dealing with citizens. That is his solution here. We are talking about martial law. The president of the United States has threatened to use martial law in order to stop American citizens from protesting. Now, he's saying it's about 
the violence and the looting and the rioting. Once again, that is a spin because the vast majority of these protesters aren't doing anything of the sort. Now, he wants to go to that extreme in order to uh, respond to the minority of looters and rioters that are happening in this country. But where's the extreme action uh, when we were complaining about police brutality? Where's the government intervention uh, when we were talking about the inequity and injustices that were boiling up to this moment? No extreme action, not even moderate action took place at that point. Now, all of a sudden, we're at 100 on a scale of one to 100, and it's the military. That is his threat. So, so it, it almost looks like, not almost, it looks like, uh, hey, we had a problem with police violence, and Trump's answer is, then I'll give you more state violence. Well, and I want, yes, and I want you to remember during his speech, he, he spoke in code, man. This cat has a great connection with the people that follow him. He said that he's protecting every freedom-loving American, and he went into his talking points, but he said something that a lot of people missed. He said, He's protecting Americans, including, and he made emphasis, your Second Amendment right, which is your right to bear arms. What was the code in that message? He's letting citizens know that support him and support his ideology, that he's going to protect their rights to bear arms and use it against these citizen protesters. That's what I got out of that message. He wasn't even talking about the Second Amendment. This conversation has never been about the Second Amendment, but all of a sudden he inserted it in his speech as it relates to military intervention. That was called directly to his surrogates. So now we know that because it's not like he meant, hey, protesters, don't forget, you have Second Amendment rights. You could also bring guns to the protest. Right. <laughs> Nobody exactly. meant that. And if he didn't mean that, then who did he mean? But it, what else does he mean? And, and remember, we're still experiencing protesting throughout this country where armed men are going to government buildings and nobody has lifted a finger to remove them. Why are you protesting with an assault weapon? What do you plan to do with that assault weapon? Why are we not outraged? But I promise you this, if you had 500 black men with arm, uh, armed at a uh, government building, this president will respond to that immediately. Yeah, look, uh, the, the use of the military inside the country is incredibly dangerous, because if we get used to that, and the military starts taking orders inside the country, uh, well, then the president can say, I didn't lose the election. Uh, and the military says, I didn't lose the election. So I, I don't care what uh, the numbers say or the facts say. Uh, and then we live in a a military state, which the right wing hilariously uh, claims that they're against. Like they say that's the right. number one thing they're against. And in fact, they can't wait for it. So right. it, it, Rashad, it almost seems like it depends on who's in charge of that police state. <laughs> that's what it depends on, because this is this is tribalism. This is what tribalism looks like. Everything gets excused for the tribal leader, and Trump has become the tribal leader. He has not tried to live up to the institution of the presidency. Instead, he brought the presidency down to fit him. And this is what he's been able to do. He's been able to transform the Republican Party at its core. They are no longer the party of family values. They are no longer the party of the fiscal conservative. They are no longer uh, the party of Christian compassion. They are no longer that party. They have lost their identity. It is now sucked in the ego of this president. And I'm telling Republicans, if you don't figure out how to do something quick 
and transform the narrative, your party will forever be affixed to the presidency of this one man. So uh, I believe you've called this the beginning of the hard shift. What, what does that mean? What is the hard shift? The hard shift is this. The day, the era of blown up charges are over. We're talking about police culture. There's a culture in policing that says whatever the cop says about you is true. And even if it's not true, you're going to be significantly inconvenienced until the court determines that it's not true. The culture also protects cops typically in criminal behavior. We would call it excessive, excessive force. Excessive force is illegal. You don't get you don't get excessive force. Um, you don't use excessive force as an excuse to get a write up at a job. Uh, if you use excessive force at your workplace, what is that? That's called assault. Uh, you go to jail for that if somebody is willing to press charges. But all of a sudden, uh, excessive force became utilized as a way to buffer cops from the reality of their criminal behavior. Um, and I'm happy to say that even in Fulton County, you just had six cops in Atlanta. Six cops have now been charged with a criminal uh, offense. Some of them were aggravated assault because they engaged in excessive force. That is part of the hardship. Yeah, so we saw them get dragged out of the cars, those two young students. Uh, and so for the folks that are not following that story day to day, uh, tell us who they were and why the cops assaulted them uh, and why you think it's assault, uh, what the cops did. Yeah, so we don't know exactly why the cops decided to approach this vehicle, break the window, bust the tire, tase them, mace them, and drag them out the car. Okay, we don't know why exactly yet, but we do know it happened. Uh, both of these are college students. One goes to Morehouse College. Uh, the young lady goes to Spelman, and they were in shock. They were in fear, uh, and they were dragged out of that vehicle, uh, placed under arrest. I, I don't even think the young lady ever received a charge. The young man got a couple of uh, misdemeanor charges. Uh, the DA looked at this case quickly. The chief of police fired those uh, two of those cops immediately and put the rest of them on desk duty. The district attorney, Paul Howard of Fulton County in Atlanta, decided to charge all six of these cops with crimes ranging from destruction of property all the way to aggravated assault. Now, there's a lot of video footage. It was also caught by a local affiliate, um, WGCL in Atlanta. And then you had the body cams of these police officers. The reason why this happened so quickly, and I spoke to the DA today, he said because he had all of the evidence. He had all of the video evidence. He had all of the uh, eyewitness testimony, and he was able to uh, to obtain a warrant from the Superior Court judge to effect an arrest. And these cops have until Friday to turn themselves in. That's part of that culture shift. Uh, what's good for me and you, if it would, would be a crime if you and I did it, it's a crime if they did it. This is not really excessive force. This is what we call unlawful force because force was not even necessary or required in the first place. So uh, some folks saw that uh, the two officers who were fired were African-American. And uh, and the right wing reacts by saying, well, then it might, must not be a race issue. Um, uh, <laughs> let me just let you take that. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I got some of that on social media, too. And I've been very clear. I don't give a damn what race they are. If they are committing criminal acts under the authority and power of that badge that we pay for as citizens, as taxpayers, and that we believe in them enough to uh, to publicly protect us, uh, then if they act out of line, they need to be held accountable to the law. Uh, this is a microcosm and does not 
uh, somehow um, dissuade us from the argument of the macrocosm, which is systemic racism and prejudicial behavior in the, in the United States of America. And for anyone who would say, oh, these are black cops, obviously racism doesn't exist. I can't even argue with clowns like that because they're not even serious people. <laughs> yes, and it's in the culture. Uh, so right. what we're trying to fix is the culture of policing. That's so right. As we near the end here, I gotta ask you about that. Uh, my, my sense is, so we know Trump, his answer is more violence, not less violence. We talked about it. But I don't think Democrats have done enough to say, no, there's something wrong with the culture of policing throughout the country. There's something wrong with the training of police throughout the country. What's your take on that? A, do you share that sentiment? And if so, how, because in order to get reform, we actually have to have the politicians do something. So how do we get the Democrats yeah. to understand what the problem is and fight for solutions? Yeah, you cannot distinguish between a Republican administration and a Democratic administration when it comes to police culture. They are similar. You see the same issues regardless of who the mayor is or what party affiliation, who the governor is or what party affiliation, which means that the culture is deeper than partisanship. So we got to stop talking about this in the political partisan context and start talking about this as a community-led, issues-based context. Here's what I see happening. If Democrats are going to be the party that leads the progressive movement, I'm telling every mayor, county commissioner, governor, attorney general, these are things you have to do. You have to now listen to the politics of the community and do it the way it should have been done day one and get out of the politics of the police unions and that blue shield, because that will not protect your political future. That community will. These cats will not. That's my response to it. 100 percent. They're so deferential to police unions. It's and it's to the great detriment of the rest of us. Um, uh, so, Dr. Rashad Ritchie in Atlanta, uh, if folks are in Atlanta or anywhere else, how can they catch you? Man, they can catch me 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. on News and Talk 1380 WAOK. Uh, you can always follow me on social media at Rashad 1380 uh, and find me online at RashadRitchie.com. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Ritchie. We appreciate it. Thank you, man.